Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, this is Paul Axton, and I'm here with uh, Matt Welch. And Matt, you are in... Ah, yes, it's the great state of Indiana. I'm in Indianapolis. Okay, and Jonathan is in Texas. And by the magic of the internet, we are all in one room together, the Zoom room. And today we're going to talk about the development and interplay of modernity, nominalism, secularism, and its impact then upon not simply theology, but really upon a kind of experiential reality that is a part of a theological understanding. Is that a nice summary of the, the discussion? It's a big discussion. It, it's, it is big and wanders. To, we get to sin <laughs> and salvation. <laughs> Talking about heaven, hell, God. <laughs> John, Paul and I talked today for about four hours before. Yeah, it was every time. We were sort of um, talking about nominalism in the context of East and Western notions mm-hmm. of, of, of God and about how um, almost like the nature of nominalism is to in some way posit a gap or a distance or an absence or something in between like whether it's the truth and the live reality of our relationship to the truth. And Mm. we're just going through the various ways that you can do that, you know, Christologically or doctrinally even where it's like, well, we're, we're sort of positing a gap here between, you know, the words of Jesus and human words or the ethics of Jesus and, you know, ethics in the church and, uh, and things like that. So I don't know if that relates to the discussion that you guys were kind of having about nominalism. Yeah, definitely. The thing that I've been trying to read up on to no avail, and if you had somebody more intelligent than me, maybe they could run it down, but is this idea of critical realism. And so critical realism, not I wouldn't say a recovery of the classical synthesis, because I think that's people who are delving in critical realism realize that's not something that we can do, that we don't live in that time. But in as much as nominalism is a reaction to the classical synthesis, the final version of which perhaps is expressed by St. Thomas Aquinas. It's a turning away from the idea that there's a cosmos in which we are all participants in an ontology that in which all things that exist do so in imitation of God, who is existence and is the good, um, and that we participate then in truth and beauty and the good. And in our participation, we, have, we actually have true participation in God. Now, what that's not explaining necessarily, what that conversation doesn't explain, is what does that mean for human knowledge? And so that's even a misstep that most people, when they're reacting against, say, Aquinas or the classical synthesis, classical theology in general, is they think that what was going on there was all a conversation about what we can know. Uh, but they weren't natural theologians in that sense. So I think that uh, in as much as the 20th century conversation revisits this sort of in the context of both 
uh, Roman Catholics trying to recover the way, uh, recover again, I don't know if it's the right word, Roman Catholics trying to come up with a way of doing theology and a way of talking about God that is intelligible to what the early church thought, what the patristic era thought, what the medieval theologians thought up until maybe around 13, 1400 when this starts to fall apart. On the Protestant side of things, I think people struggling with the fact that Protestantism looks like a huge failure if you have any Karl Barth sees that in some way uh, the church was way too easily co-opted both by the German Reich in World War I and then also, and he's seeing the same thing unfold in the 1930s uh, leading up to World War II, and he's identifying that problem with the sort of Protestant theology that gives you a, nat- a natural theology along Enlightenment terms. So maybe all that needs to be unpacked. I don't think that's necessarily just the same thing as uh, like what Aquinas is doing, though, you know, that's a big question that's still open to a lot of people. What exactly is Aquinas doing? Is he doing a type of foundationalism? I don't think so, but maybe. I think he's just pointing towards an internal ordering of things that is already participating in the good, the beautiful, and the true. So all, all that, I think, is in the background to what you were saying. And so nominalism, in as much as it's a reaction to this classical synthesis, does turn towards logic, and it turns to the idea that we have to know things um, in their specifics, that all knowledge then is sort of on the same level. So there's not a real participation. On the one hand, you know, nominalism affects us, you know, from the sort of our existential reality of, you know, doing evil in the name of the good. That is, that's like sort of one form. But I think that what John was getting at, and this is critical, and I want him to talk more about this, is uh, but what we, what it ultimately does, though, is affects the way that we talk about God, though. And that's really the most important part of what his point is, because then that sort of, of course, affects our ethics, and it affects mm. our our existential sort of lived out theology. So John, if you could talk just a little, maybe briefly about how, you know, nominalism in terms of the way that it affects our God talk, our theology, uh, what that looks like. This probably makes more sense to you now. I was saying, oh, well, you know, Anglicanism and some forms of Lutheranism, as much as they identify like the main point as participating with God in liturgy rather than uh, teaching. See, there's a division already. So how do we talk about God? Do we talk about, is the language we talk about God the language of prayer? Or is the language we talk about God a, a different sort of language that I, I was about to say, well, just the language of the academy, but that's, I don't think that automatically disqualifies it from being good or better. Uh, the, the trick is here that I think it's William of Ockham who constructs a thought experiment where he says, uh, and this will sound familiar to you. Uh, what if the world doesn't exist? What if it's all in my head? What if I don't have a body and, you know, trees aren't real and other people aren't real and they don't have bodies either? And God is creating this image and the idea of the world in our minds. It sounds a lot like Descartes' thought experiment, right? Except Descartes had the good sense to say, perhaps it's a demon deceiving me, not God Almighty. Um, so. So there's, therein lies the, the crux of the issue, I think, in some way, that does our talk about God participate in the sense that it's ordered, in the sense that it's true, in the sense um, that it gives rise to uh, and forms who we are as ethical beings? Does it actually participate in who God is? Well, in as much as most Christians, I think, believe that prayer is a sort of conversation where our, our talk about God and our, our um, 
dialogue with God is real. Once you say that, well, actually, you know, these categories that we use, such a, that are universal categories, good, truth, beauty, those aren't real. Those are just um, conventions of language. They're just the way we speak. So those categories are real in name only, hence where nominalism identifies this way of thinking. Then how does our God talk participate in the conversation that is happening in the Trinity between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and it's eternal. Well, that, there's the problem, right? So that I think theology becomes much more academic, so that we would we find ourselves more comfortable with studying the Bible than confronting Jesus when we hear the words of Paul uh, or the words of John or whoever. And so that's that's the difference, and you see it very starkly in Protestantism, whether it's Lutheranism or Reformed theology. I think maybe less or so, and maybe I'm just saying this because you know I'm an Anglican priest, I'm an Episcopal priest, but I think that in as much as we've always focused on liturgy more than we focused on like a confession of faith, that maybe maybe Anglicanism gets a little bit of a pass. There's the crux of the issue. But then what happens, of course, is when our God talk fails us, we don't conceive of God anymore in terms of love and wisdom uh, as the one who is the source of who we are in every moment. We conceive of God as one in terms of he has caused all this to happen. And so we're, we're at a distance, yeah, power. So voluntarism gets linked with nominalism because what we can know about God, what we can say about God is all something God has efficiently caused through cause and effect. Uh, not through participation. So that that's the difference. So then th- what would our talk about God or what does theology look like? And that's why I think nominalism is really a dangerous thing. And in this sense, like Eastern Orthodoxy hasn't participated. Um, you know, they don't, nominalism was never the way they talked about God. So the conversation is truly different. Their God talk is different. And in the 20th century, both in Roman Catholicism and in at least Karl Barth, maybe He sums up all of 20th century Protestantism. Probably not, but if he did, it would be better off. He comes up with a form of God talk that he thinks, and and this is what's odd, I think, for us, because in as much as we think, well, Bart's reacting against Roman Catholicism, but the way Bart wants to talk about God is, in a sense, one that participates in Jesus and the way he reworks the way he's going to talk about the Trinity and the doctrine of election specifically places Jesus in connection with Trinitarian theology in a way that no other Reformed person had ever done. So I think it kind of gets him off the hook and that there's a real participation in any way in in our God talk and our understanding of who God is. That's very, very helpful. One place that this all comes to a head, and not to say that it's simply here, is in the Protestant Reformation and then in the way that uh, a Protestant understanding develops and then what they do with the idea of universals, which would be things like the good, the true, the beautiful, is to say, well, that only exists as a convention of language. Uh, that exists in name only, hence the term nominalism. Well, the first way you see that expressed leads directly to the Reformation because it's in conversations about who God is in terms of sovereignty and will. So whereas before Aquinas, if you would have asked him or any of the fathers, who is God? Well, God is love. God is a God of love and wisdom. So that God is the principal cause of all things and God is the final cause of all things. The way they would understand that would be more or less than engaging what I think would be a scriptural theology in and through the terms that they've inherited from Neoplatonism and the philosophic world that they lived in. And that the Christianity that most of us are practicing 
is itself a byproduct that is saturated with this understanding. There is an overwhelming understanding, a shared understanding that comes about in North America. Yeah, I think so. An illustration of that. So if you think about from the Reformation on, you can think about the establishment and the continuation of the field of biblical studies or the advent of the Bible study within churches. Something sort of foreign to the church before the Reformation, which seems very strange to anybody who has basically lived in the United States, because I think even those groups which aren't Protestant have taken on Bible studies because everybody else is doing that around them. So the, it's the idea, though, that when you think about how do we study the Bible, well, the Bible became a book to be studied. I think the Reformation does that. So with nominalism goes hand in hand uh, what I'm reading another book, Douglas Campbell calls foundationalism. Now, he doesn't mean, and he, he tries to nuance this differently, though it is similar to what philosophers mean when they talk about foundationalism. But what he thinks basically is happening in uh, Bible study or in Christianity with foundationalism is that we determine that our societies as a whole have come up with another, an alternative definition for truth than God. So that truth is no longer synonymous with God, but it's its own category. And so you can think about how that really blooms in the Enlightenment, right, with the ideas of pure reason. But you can take that back even further. So then when we talk about truth, we usually talk about it then as a standard or a measure. And when we come to study the Bible, we begin to ask the question, well, what's true or how is this true? And then we hand the conversation over, I mean, the we here, I guess, is Christians, but it would, it would have been Christians on both sides when this begins. We're willing to do historical studies of the Bible. So the big questions begin to be, well, who wrote these books? Uh, we begin to do studies of scripture uh, that use textual analysis, like all these things are not bad in and of themselves or anything, but I, I just want to suggest that we begin to do a scientific, but scientific in scare quotes, a scientific study of the Bible. And then that devolves over time uh, until now. I mean, you just have anybody can sit down and say, oh, well, I, I can be the judge of what the Bible says. And that is foundationalism, or is it we do the same thing in Christian apologetics. So let's take a philosophical or rational argument and let's argue that because this argument is true, then God exists. But of course, an ancient Christian or even in the early Middle Ages would have said, well, because God is truth, God is existence. And therefore, anything that we know about God should be orderly. It should have an internal structure about it. And that is a participation in the existence or the truth that God is. It's not a ladder to get to a proposition that God exists. So I think you see this working out in various ways. And I just named the two things that the major Protestant theologian in the 20th century takes issue with. That's Karl Barth, of course, who takes issue with one, that we could have some sort of propositionalism apologetic that argues towards God, which is what natural theology had become and Protestantism at that point. And also he takes issue with the way people were reading the Bible, which is to say, oh, it's a book like any other. Let's apply all these true methods that we as humans have come up with, and let's study and see what Scripture says. So the answer for Bard is to try to recover you know, the strange new world in the Bible, this idea that actually we, in, we are entering into a world that's much larger than us when we read Scripture because we're encountering the risen Lord um, who is truth. So as we read or as we live in the church, as we live in communities that have encountered Christ and are then formed by 
who Jesus is, we are participating in God in various ways. Th- those are the kind of the two things that are at stake that you're mentioning. And so there is a loss of the integration of understanding and knowledge. That knowledge and the realms of knowledge each become a kind of autonomous sphere mm-hmm. is not uh, dependent or interdependent on a larger reality, if you think in terms of nominalism, that they, they have an integrity within them themselves, whether we're talking about mathematics, we're talking about science, that all of these realms then separate and they imagine in a kind of foundational language that they mm-hmm. themselves provide their own foundations. Mm-hmm. Part of the conversation that Paul and I were having earlier is the idea of that sort of participatory ontology that uh, seems to survive uh, you know, in the East, maybe in ways that it didn't in the West, and just the whole idea of sort of a synergy um, between faith and works, between you know, uh, the teachings of Jesus, the ethical teachings of Jesus, and our participation in following, the, you know, um, or uh, between, go on and on, between um, nature and grace, between the glory and God, of God and the glory that he shares you know, with the saints, uh, all the way through all the different sola scripturas. It's like, well, do we... Uh, do we objectify the word as you were describing really well and therefore thereby almost sort of create a gap or a distance between the word that's uh, for people like origin you know was a an extension of the incarnation right it was like a it was something to be embodied it was something to share in to participate in so i'm reading um you know father john bear's book which is is really good it's um it's saint john the theologian in his paschal gospel and he's talking about the nature of incarnation versus almost sort of a disincarnate understanding which i think is what we're kind of talking about and so with the the reformation sort of almost like kind of sort of severe reaction against the roman catholic church as often happens you know the the pendulum sort of swings very wildly, you know, in the, in the opposite direction from a sort of participatory, you know, understanding, whether epistemologically or ontologically, into more of a, um, almost like a ghetto, you know, where one can even argue that, uh, that, that Christ is sort of objectified, you know, that uh, it's, it's uh, through Christ alone. In other words, that we're all Christians here, and we all believe that, uh, that Jesus, his blood saves mankind, that his life and death and resurrection saves mankind. But I think that there's a form of the faith that would say, yeah, but we're to participate in that, that there's a synergy, that there's a, a shared, uh, that we can share in the life of God. But there's another form, uh, almost like epistemologically, that would say, no, actually, it's, um, we can't share in it be precisely because what you were saying is it's, it's just a name. It's an object. It's a word. There's a gap. The big picture thing that we're describing is that secularism and modernity have occurred. And we can trace it in, in a number of ways. It's theological. I'm surprised the degree to which Charles Taylor ties secularism to an understanding of God that we just call deism now. But I'm not sure that it's simply those who would have formally identified themselves as deists that were, in fact, practicing deists. And I think that what we are describing overall in the Protestant Reformation, in the Catholic rise of nominalism, is then the same move, that we're tracing then the sense in which a people's experience then, or understanding of who God is, 
in some way became, we might say, just deist-like, or that it, God in some way became removed from, and we, can, and we can describe that removal. Something that ought to be recovered or something that ought to be strived for is a synthesis in which who we are as humans actually and really participates in what God is doing in the world and then who God is in and of himself. Whereas the nominalists get away from that. And so when you ask them and then in the following centuries, well, who is God? Well, God is sovereign. Um, God is the one who has willed all things into being and God determines uh, the actions and the way things are more or less. From there arise a bunch of problems with the fact that uh, there's evil. So if God is willing all things, and how we understand will now is not that our will somehow participate in some uh, other version of what it means to be good, uh, but we understand will as sort of on uh, in univocal terms, the same things that God does when he acts in time and space, then uh, you know, how do you keep God from doing evil? So you get all sorts of different things, some doctrines of predestination, which have God condemning and, uh, you know, saving people, overriding the human will, as if those are things that correspond to one another, the will of God and human wills. And, it, and then that just continues to carry on, both in, I think, Roman Catholic theology after the Reformation and in Protestant theology. So like some specific names or a way to make that more concrete. Of course, everybody probably recognized that I, it sounded like I was talking about Calvinism or uh, John Calvin's theology. But what's lesser known is that in Roman Catholic theology, there was a huge controversy between Domingo Banez, who is a Dominican. And he's the most influential Catholic theologian, at least in Spain, in the 16th century. And in the 16th century, the Spanish Catholic Church is one of the most powerful Catholic churches in Europe. Then you have Luis de Molina, who is a Jesuit. I believe he's also Spanish, actually. But he's not quite as influential as Banez in church politics, but he brings up the controversy that later becomes known as Molinism. Well, the Pope convenes theologians to discuss the ideas of Banez, who sounds much to us like a Calvinist, and Molina, who's doing something that's a bit more complicated and ends up uh, giving us what's known as middle knowledge. It's a scheme for how God can foreknow things without determining all of our actions besides hope. But he doesn't say, oh, one of these groups is a heretic, one of these teachings is heretical, but both are allowed to exist within the counter-reformed church, such that what ends up happening in Roman Catholicism and what's already happening in Protestantism ends up becoming very much alike, even though it's on two different trajectories coming out of the 16th century. So I think in that sense, with nominalism. We've all been affected, so we can't point the finger anywhere else. And we can say that none of us think in terms of a classical synthesis as the church did, say, in the Middle Ages or even the early church. Now, that's not necessary, you know, to then place a judgment call on that would be another move. I'm not trying to say whether that's it's a good or a bad thing. I don't think that nominalism is good, but I'm not for sure that we want to imagine that we can just recover that classical synthesis. God, in some way, became removed from and we can and we can describe that removal in yeah. a series of understandings we can describe it scientifically that newtonian mechanics you know we we enter in into a, a mechanical realm we can describe it in the way that matt was saying that luther or at least the reception of lutheranism 
through Calvinism, and again, I would say particularly in North America. I always think Luther was more profound than his many of yeah. his followers. Well, and of course, I mean, he was a nominalist in the sense that he even trained at a institution that was known. <laughs> like, it, it wouldn't have been a mystery to Luther that he was a nominalist. <laughs> his picture, then, is also one in which sola scriptura, sola fide, then, and we can just run this down. Let me reverse this, though. Let me say something bigger and see if you agree with it. And that is that what we're describing overall, we might imagine, is peculiar to modernity. So going forward, especially in the 20th century, people have tried to talk about meaning and the way we uh, with the way meaning is intelligible to us. And this, is, of course, is then also after a lot of, after philosophy is sort of separated as an academic discipline from theology, and that's a part of the conversation as well. So it gets pretty complicated. You have some people arguing for something called critical realism over and against, say, a pure idealism, which says things only exist, uh, you know, it's, it's the ideal form or something like that. I'm just reading Schopenhauer, who, who's doing that kind of move right now. To say, well, no, we do think that there are things that are real that also participate being in a real sense, but we also recognize the way that those things are intelligible to us is through in and through idea. So that's the critical part of that. So all, all of that becomes, I think, a part of this conversation. And then you've had people tracing genealogies, whether that's Charles Taylor saying, well, this is the rise of the secular, so that he then has a scheme for different ages of the secular, regularity one, two, and three is the way he talks about that. Or you have John Milbank kicking off radical orthodoxy by basically making the assertion that something happens in the late Middle Ages that devolves theological discourse such that atheism or materialism or um, naturalistic humanism, all of those things aren't uh, what you get when you take away religion, those are actually just heresies of the church, and they have a clear thought trajectory going back to Christian thought in the Middle Ages as it devolves from nominalism. And he points to William of Ockham and John Duns as sort of the origin point of those ideas. So that what you get, I mean, what you're describing, you can almost set aside the, the philosophical and theological and, and say that it, it's, it's bigger than any of those, that what you're describing is that we're, we're all being shaped and formed by what might be called the secular. And it really doesn't matter what your mm -hmm. own religious position is, that secularity is one, something that we're all saturated in. That's right. And so uh, the question then is, what do we think the secular is? And I think that's where Taylor is helpful. Because, you know, at one point in time, and I still run into people who believe this, so it's not dead, but there was the thing, you know, known as the secularization thesis or theory, or, uh, which basically said that we are moving as uh, the total of humanity towards a more secular reality. We don't need religion anymore. And if you'll pull back religion, you're basically left with all the good things that we do. Um, and, you know, we can go off into some scientific uh, utopian sunset and we'll live happily ever after. Uh, two things, I think, made that position untenable, even though you could still find people in universities uh, with, you know, fancy chairs holding to the secularization thesis. I think one of the things that made that untenable was, but in the last 50 years, like the Arab Spring and then the increase of Christianity in both Africa and Southeast Asia, 
Also, in the United States, what's been strange is you can see some type of working of secularity, like, um, well, I'll use Taylor's terms here in a second, except the fact that religious belief hasn't waned, rather the structures that we used to think of and associate with religious belief have, are disappearing very quickly. A lot of people have wanted to take a look at this. Well, what does it mean to believe? What does it mean to be religious? Uh, what does it mean to be secular? And you have to accommodate the fact that, well, no, once you pull back religion, you're not just left with basically human society as such, that all of this is much more intertwined. So I think that's right, Paul. Uh, this, the way Taylor, and I'm not reading directly from Taylor, this is a, a summary by Christopher Ben Simpson, who's a professor at Lincoln Christian University. He takes and summarizes Taylor's view, or Taylor's structure as this. So secularity, one, is a retreat of religion from public life in the 20th century. Secularity, two, is a decline in belief and practice, mainly taking place in the 19th century. And then secularity three is a change in the conditions of belief. And you see that beginning in the late 14th or early 14th even uh, through the 18th century. So he's got a little question mark behind the 14th century. So I think it's true to say we're living in that secularity one. There's a retreat of religion from public life such that even, you know, you go talk to anybody who's interested in politics or thinks they're a Christian and the way they think or what they think rather that a separation between church and state means is usually in terms of something either they want to do away with <laughs> and bring prayer back into schools, uh, do that in quotes, I've heard people say this, or something they want to enforce and basically say that it means religion doesn't have a voice in the public arena, which uh, that's probably not what anybody actually meant in the 18th century when, you know, the framers of the Constitution, regardless of their beliefs, not claiming that they were Christian by any means, but they didn't think of a separation of church and state in the terms that we now do. Taylor's thesis explains that. So that there have been shifts, sociological shifts, that have conditioned what we think about belief and what we think about religion. And I think it is peculiar. There are many manifestations of it that are peculiar, and I don't want to take away from that. And the experience of modernity, I think, is what we're describing, uh, is peculiar. I guess I'm just... I'm getting the sense, though, from, from orthodoxy, though, that there is no, you know, from a properly orthodox perspective, there is no space in which God doesn't occupy or something like this. I mean, that would be like the space of death or whatever, you know. But with, of course, with a modern sensibilities, there really there is like there's sort of this imagined space. Maybe God doesn't sort of occupy this, you know, space in our thought or in our ethic. That Well, I know that Jesus teaches this, but, you know, in the real world or however you want to... Mm -hmm. Mark Hay, you know, uh, whatever we call, you know, God's world and our world. But again, there's a gap that's posited in my understanding of what you're saying of nominalism between saying that the beautiful as a transcendental sort of category, as a reality, as an actually existing thing, isn't something that we have access to. We just have the access to the name, the word, the beautiful as a description for something, but it's not actual. It's not real. And so it is, though, I, and this is kind of like the conversation that we might have about it. Is there a sense, though, that you can get in some theologies where your participation really isn't required? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like it yeah, almost yeah. goes down into that sort of thing that may flow out from a nominalism where it's because we can't really participate in the logos, which infuses all things, uh, which is something very 
different than saying that, well, we can talk about it, we can describe it. You know, the, even the way that God justifies us is to make a declaration, to speak a word over us of not guilty, but it's to not actually change us and just mm-hmm. make us righteous in that sense. It's to, it's to use a word, it's to declare us righteous rather than to actually, you know, ontologically or whatever you want to say. Like, mm-hmm. And so I'm just wondering how... It's, it, can, it can seem like a really academic conversation that doesn't have too much bearing on like our live reality. But I think that you really gave a nice genealogy or a nice you know, narrative sort of history of, of how it functions. But in everyday Christian life, I think that what we're getting at is that we can either imagine that, that there really is a space that God might not have too much to do with, whether it's economics or whether it's you know, foreign policy or whether it's uh, what we do with our bodies or our sexuality or just whatever else, because we have this realm of you know, human rationality or of ethics or whatever else uh, that is informed by the logos of God. And that's one way to do it or to understand that there's actually, no, there's, there's sort of the life of the Holy Trinity and everything that exists outside of that is by definition lacking in, in a sort of fullness of, of life or being or thought or whatever else. So I think the challenge is, is to run down maybe theologically to say, well, there's a form of the faith whereby God sort of does it all. And we all would want to say as Christians that, of course, God is sovereign. Of course, God is gracious and that his grace is the alpha and the omega, that, you know, he, his, his act of goodness always precedes ours and all those things that are sort of basic to, you know, just basic uh, Christian thought. But we would also want to say, though, um, on the other side of the Reformation, that human participation or cooperation or synergy or however you want to put it is required precisely because of theosis you know that we are uh, joining ourselves or rather the you know into the divine life or that in and through the eucharist or these other you know means that god is our lives and, and his are being joined together so that the gap you know we would call that gap that we could say but that that gap we could call sin or death but ultimately what we're describing is a separation and uh, a fragmentation and alienation that is always the human tendency. And so what we find occurring in, in the modern period is really, it is distinct in certain ways. And this was actually Derrida's point. I was always, I was surprised that other people haven't picked this up in Derrida that many of his followers were, were thinking, oh, he's just describing modernity. And his question to John Caputo at a conference was, why, why would you think that it's simply modernity? And I think that we can trace this same understanding or this failure of understanding to what is, uh, in fact, the loss of, it, it is a turn to... Uh, an, an experience, a uh, uh, psychological. You know, this was Francis Schaeffer ran it down. He says that what we are describing when we describe sin is psychological. Well, that's certainly a part of what we're describing, that there is a loss of integration within the self. There's an alienation so that mind and body, we might say in Paul or in Cartesian metaphysics are pitted against one another in a Kantian understanding, the thing that thinks is in some way inaccessible through thought. That is not a realm apart then from what we're describing in the, the notions of God. The hiddenness of God is not of a completely different realm than the hiddenness 
even of the noumena from the phenomena. That it's sociological, that is that there's a, a failure, the sense, you know, this is the common definition of, this is the picture of what an idolatrous situation is, but isn't modernity then a repetition of a reification of that which is finite? Whether it's reason, in other words, reason, there's nothing wrong with reason, whether it's language, that language itself will become reified, whether it's science, there's nothing wrong with science, but to imagine that it is an end in and of itself, or whether it's mathematics, it's sociological, it's psychological, it's philosophical. I think we could describe it in that realm. I think that ultimately, though, the way that we would sum all of this up is to say that, in fact, experientially, it pertains to the, our sense of the passage of time, just the, our sense of the world around us. That is that we're saturated in this thing, and our religion or our Christianity is such, and I, I'm not sure, I mean, uh, that in, in saying that Eastern Orthodoxy hasn't gone this route, and what you're saying, John, is yes, but does it have the tools? In other words, I think there are resources, both East and West, mm -hmm that were there to resist this thing. But I'm not sure that we've named it in an adequate enough manner to get at the depth of the mm -hmm. violence and alienation that is just integral to what we call sin. Mm -hmm. What is being posed to us is something so radical, the peace of Christ, it's so universal, it pertains to everything, that I think what happens East and West is that there is a relinquishing of an understanding that is thoroughly Christian, that in some way there is a departure then, or maybe there's not a full realization. Mm -hmm. maybe, there's, maybe we're in the process of realization, mm -hmm to the degree to which the redemption of Christ is revolutionary. So I think you made a really huge point that I want to make sure anybody listening is going to make the leap with you, which is, uh, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think you said what we've been talking about thus far with nominalism is really just the sy systematic outworking of sin in Western thought, and that sin is the issue that stands behind why we would be divided from each other? Why would we, we would be divided from God? Why we tend to turn inwards and more imminent in our thought rather than why we are open both to the other and ultimately to God? So that then the answer is going to be what resources does the church have in terms of actual salvation from sin? But that's also then the answer to why are we thinking these thoughts that uh, lead to the secular, which as we continue to see unfold around us, is isolating, leads to loneliness among peoples, leads to communities failing. Those are the kind of things that Taylor's pointing to. Is that a good summation? Yeah, that we've, in Taylor's description, that we've entered into an imminent frame. Like I, appreciate, I appreciate you, Matt and John, and it's a, been a great conversation. If you'll go to our Patreon page, you can support uh, Forging Plowshares Ministry. You can also go to the donate button at Forging Plowshares and uh, donate. 
We are just starting a new module on religion and culture. And this conversation, I think, uh, folds into or is a kind of, it, it points then to that discussion that we're, that we're having. But thank you for your participation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.